Hey, it's good to see everybody here. And I would guess this is the most people we have had in here since March of last year. So we're really glad you're here. And I'll, uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. This week, we're going to add more chairs in here. So I know there's some of you out in the lobby and the overflow. Thank you so much for sticking with us out there. We're going to add more chairs and more kids' classes next week. So uh, we'll be ready for you. Invite your friends to come back next week as well. We are continuing the study of the story today, and last week we covered the book of Joshua, the entire book in 26 minutes. This week we're going to cover the book of Judges, and the Bible says that the nation of Israel followed God faithfully throughout the life of Joshua and also the elders that followed him. The Jews had entered the promised land, guided by Joshua. They had seen the walls of Jericho crumble down by the power of God. However, they failed to pass that love for God on to the next generation. And we're in the book of Judges today, chapter 2. Here's the setting. Joshua has just died, and we pick up the story in Judges 2, verse 10. It says, After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, this verse is really an eye-opener for us, I think. It, it shows us how important it is to pass our faith on, our spiritual faith on, to the next generation. But that did not happen here. And so Judges 2 begins with this pattern of behavior that we see by the Israelites that we're going to see over and over again. It's disobedience, punishment, repentance, and deliverance. We're going to see that cycle several times in this book. But when they disobeyed, they started walking in darkness. And they stopped worshiping the Lord, and they began worshiping idols and Baal, and they weren't standing out. They were compromising. They were blending in with the world. And before you know it, they were just like their pagan neighbors. Judges 2 verse 12 says, They forsook the Lord their God, forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and worshipped and served Baal and the asterisk. Now, when you talk about the asterisk, we're talking about these poles that were placed in honor of a supposed Canaanite goddess. And this went against Levitical law. So this went against what God had planned. And the next four verses, beginning with verse 16, sum up the entire book of Judges for us. It says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with that judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under that oppression that afflicted them. But when the judges died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So you can see the pattern that you see here of walking in darkness. But each time, God is going to use a judge to lead them back to the Lord. And so for the next 400 years, one by one, 12 people, 11 men, one woman, led the nation of Israel. Now, when we think of a judge, we think of somebody who sits with a black robe and presides over a trial in a courtroom. That's not what we have here. At this time, a judge was more than that. In the Old Testament, these judges were the political, spiritual, and military leaders, all rolled into one person. And one of those judges was a woman named Deborah. We would call her a woman of influence. 
She was the most unlikely judge because she was a woman living in a man's world. And it wasn't common that a woman would have such a powerful office. They were usually seen and not heard, and they didn't lead nations for sure. But God had raised Deborah up to be someone who was anointed among his people. And God used her in a powerful way. I heard the story of a CEO of a company who was on vacation in New England with his wife. And they stopped for gas. And when they did, the husband went inside to get a candy bar. He came back out and he saw his wife having a conversation with a gas station attendant. And they were laughing. They were enjoying the conversation. And he felt kind of awkward as he walked past them back to the car. His wife continued the conversation for a few minutes. Then she called the gas station attendant by name and then went back to her car. So the husband was kind of uncomfortable with this. And he said, who was that? She said, it's the strangest thing. That's the man I was engaged to long before we ever met. And we haven't seen each other in years. This is the first time we've seen each other. The husband didn't know what to think, so he drove on a little further and finally broke the silence and kind of smugly looked at his wife and said, just think, if you would have married him, you'd be married to a gas station attendant. She said, oh, no, you don't get it. If he would have married me, he'd be a CEO. So I don't know if it's a true story, but never underestimate the power and the influence of a woman. So let's look at the life of Deborah. In Judges chapter 4, it says, after Ehud died... The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophetess, was the wife of, Lab- of that guy. Uh, Lapindoth, you, you have trouble when you read through these too. And he was leading Israel at the time. Now, Deborah had a close relationship with the Lord. And in the Old Testament, it was unusual to find a woman who was called a prophet or a prophetess. In other words, she spoke for God. She spoke on behalf of God. But Deborah was, and she did. In Judges 4.14, we see Deborah talking to her commander. It says, then Deborah said to Barak, go, This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor and was followed by 10,000 men. This is a very interesting section of Scripture because Barak was hesitant to go into battle against such a powerful army. And Deborah points out to Barak that there was going to be a woman who would be the hero of the battle. And Barak, I'm sure, thought that that was going to be Deborah. She was their leader. And so this is what happens. The battle begins, and the Israelites have the enemy on the run. And verse 17 says, Sisera, however, fled on foot. You know why he fled on foot? They were getting their tails kicked. That's why he fled on foot. And so the powerful commander leaves the troops, and he goes to run away on foot. And the Bible says he goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there were friendly relationships between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. In other words, he goes to hide in this place where he thinks he'll be safe because this family is friends with their king. Sisera, the commander of the army, is exhausted. He's thirsty. He's running and trying to hide. And out of the kindness of her heart, Jael gives him a place to stay. She says, come into my tent. You look tired. And so she gives him milk and cookies. She says, I'm not going to tell anybody where you are. She tucks him in for a nap, and he falls asleep. J.L. is such a sweet, compassionate woman. So while he's sleeping, she picks up a long tent peg and a hammer, and she drives the tent peg through his temple into the ground. And the Bible says, and he died. Well, sure, he died. 
It's a very, very graphic scene. Sometime later, Barak and the Israelites come to track down Sisera, and they think he might be in this area hiding. And so he says to Jael, have you seen that rat, Sisera? Has he been around here? And she says, yeah, I've seen him. Verse 22 says, come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead, is what it says again. It emphasizes that. And Deborah's prophecy had come true. There would be a woman who would be the hero of the battle. Now, don't you know that Jael's husband, Heber, treated her with a whole lot more respect from that day forward? And whenever they had an argument, she'd probably say, you look tired. Why don't you come lay down? He'd say, I'm not tired. I'm not laying down. away." But Deborah was respected by her people, and she spoke the truth. And God revealed to her that because of the fear and reluctance of some of the warriors, a woman would wind up being the hero, and everyone assumed it would be Deborah, but it wasn't. But we're learning every time we read through this story, every time we pick up the Bible, it seems, that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He continually uses the overlooked and forgotten as he writes his story. And in this case, he uses a quick-thinking housewife to bring down a military leader And in a way, that's a reminder. I need to be ready all the time at a moment's notice for God to use me. Well, this trend of God using the unlikely characters is going to continue with another judge decades later. His name is Gideon. We call him a man of courage. For seven years, Israel had been struggling through a time of oppression. The Midianites and the Amalekites were just ruthless barbarians. And they would intimidate the Israelites by destroying their crops and stealing their cattle. And so in Judges 6, verse 11, it says... The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abrazite. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you usually don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You do it in a place where the wind can blow the chaff away. But Gideon didn't want the Midianites to see him. They were scared of the Midianites. They were like a, a ruthless gang of thugs. And they trampled their crops and overran the Israelites so bad that everybody just wanted to take refuge and go hide in caves and other places. Now, sometimes people paint the picture of Gideon being a king of a man who's very soft-spoken, kind of a cowardly man. And maybe he was. But he also was a very practical man. And he knew that they were no match for these thugs. But in this story, God is going to change Gideon. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said... The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, that seems kind of like a stretch, mighty warrior. I mean, this guy is a farmer who's trying to save his crop from the Midianites so they can't steal it. But I think the angel of the Lord is trying to inspire him, trying to impress on him, you are a mighty warrior. And he's giving him confidence. And God is about to stretch him out even more out of his comfort zone. Verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. I think we can relate. I think it's pretty easy for us to get discouraged. And he wasn't very confident because he knew who he was and he knew what he had to work with. His family wasn't made up of powerful warriors and brave leaders. In fact, they were some of the lowest of the tribe of Manasseh. And he would not be able to convince these people to follow him into the war. Who's going to follow a man like him? But we find out in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. 
Now that reminds me of when God was talking to Moses and Moses was saying, who, who, who am I to do this? Somebody else could do this so much better than me. They both felt inadequate. Someone else could do it a whole lot better. But God gives Gideon a test to see if he's committed enough, see if he would be teachable. And if Gideon trusts God, then this is going to be a really good sign. And so God commands Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal. In other words, go in your parents' front yard. There's an altar to Baal built there. I want you to just tear that down. That's your first step. Gideon obeys, but when the men of that community hear that that altar to Baal has been torn down, they try to find Gideon so they can kill him. So this was really a test of loyalty. And don't you think that Gideon, when he's asked to do this, he's thinking, God, the first test that you give me is against my family? Well, let's stop right here because this gets real personal. There are so many personal applications that we could make in this story. If you're really following Jesus, then there's going to be times when you have got to take a bold stand for your faith. Sometimes that means taking a stand with your family. It's not about trying to ruffle feathers. It's not about trying to make your family think you are spiritual, uh, super spiritual, not trying to mess up the family reunion, anything like that. But if you've made the choice to be a completely committed follower of Jesus Christ and not just a fan, there's going to be some tense moments. There will be moments when you need to take a courageous stand for what the Bible teaches and for what you know is true. You shouldn't be arrogant about it. shouldn't be mean about it. You should be passionate and you should be loving in the way you take your stand. You know, in a town the size of Derby, a church of 1,400 people tends to stand out. When people are driving around on one Sunday morning and they see 1,000 people in green t-shirts working on the great day of service for neighbors and friends, that is something that they take note of. When they see South Rock students take a stand in their schools, when they see uh, positive comments made about God on social media, when people are pulling into the parking lot eager to come and worship, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I know some of you have been put down, some of you have probably been made fun of, even turned away from your own family and friends because you decided to become a Christian. And I know that's not a pleasant feeling. But I just can't help but wonder if God might be testing you because he's preparing you to be used in a miraculous way. Well, he was testing Gideon. God knew that if he could stand up to the pagan practices of his own parents in the home, then he could become the person who would stand up against the Midianites. And so God was looking for some courage. He was looking for some consistency. God couldn't have his altar and the altar of Baal coexist in the same place. God wanted to see if Gideon would take a stand. And the second test is even greater. He says to Gideon, go fight against the Midianites. Now, these are these ruthless, thug-type people, and he's saying, go, go fight against them. And along with it is the assurance that God gave him, I will be with you, and we will strike down the Midianites together. So Gideon calls the tribes of Israel to come and fight with him. 32,000 men were ready to fight in his army. Sounds pretty powerful until you realize that the Midianites had 135,000 men in their army. And so God comes to Gideon. He says, Gideon, we've got a problem. Gideon says, we sure do. They've got more than 100,000 more men than we have. And God said, no, that's not the problem at all. The problem is you've got too many men. And so it didn't make sense to Gideon. It doesn't make sense to us either. And so God says, you've got too many. You need to whittle that down a little bit. So can you imagine, can you see what God is doing here? I mean, we, we read about this a lot. 
God is saying that if you win with 32,000 men, then your people are going to brag about how strong your army is, and they're going to think they won this battle by their own strength. So let's make sure that they know it's not by their strength, but it's by my strength that we win this battle. And so let's get the numbers down. He says, you tell the men that if they are afraid, they can go back home. So out of the 32,000, 22,000 of them were afraid, and they went back home. So Gideon is left with 10,000 men to fight. Gideon says, okay, God, this is a lot better, isn't it? God said, no, you still have too many. He said, take them down to the water, and I'll sift them for you there. And so they go down to the river to get a drink. 9,700 men go down on their hands and knees with their face in the water to get a drink. 300 of them put water in their hand and bring it up to their face so they can see everything that's going on while they're drinking the water. And God said, send everyone home except for those 300 who kept their eyes open. So Gideon started out with 32,000 men. He's down to 300 men, one for every 450 Midianites. And God says, now we're ready. Now we're ready for battle. Now let's pick it up in Judges chapter 7, verse 19. They're divided into three companies of 100 men, and they've got their weapons just like Joshua had. They've got a trumpet and an empty jar and a torch. Those are their weapons. Verse 19 says, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were going to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. When each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And so they have the mountain circled. And down in the valley, there are 135 Midianites down there just waiting. But they hear the noise in the middle of the night, and it throws them into a panic. And so they jump up, and they think they've already been invaded by the Israelites. And they start fighting each other in the darkness, and they kill each other. The Midianites killed their own people in the confusion. And the few Midianites that survived started running away, and Gideon's 300 men chased them out of town. And the Bible says that Israel enjoyed a time of peace. 450 to 1, and yet they won the battle. You know, it surprises me when I hear Christian people say, I could never be used by God. If that's you, and you have that feeling that I could never be used by God, think about this story. Pay attention to this story. Don't listen to Satan who is against you. Listen to God who is for you. How many times have you ever thought, I could never, I could never get out of debt. We have a financial peace university class that we offer several times a year here that's helped hundreds of people get out of debt. I could never boldly speak to that friend or family member about Christ. I could never turn my marriage around. We have a counseling center that would love to help you try. I could never teach a class And we all have those times of fear. And we fear different things, but we are attacked by fear. Now, for some of you, it may be fear of heights. It may be claustrophobia. I remember a a time a few years ago, I was going to the doctor's office to get a shot to go on a mission trip. And what I didn't know is there was a lady from our church in the doctor's office who was just terrified of doctor's offices. And so she'd been sitting in there about half an hour just praying, God, protect me, God, protect me. And when I walked in, her eyes got this big, and she said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been praying. I'm thinking, well, what can I do? I'm just here to get a shot. But her fear was so strong about being in a doctor's office. And we all have some kind of fear. What is your fear? Does it feel like the odds are 450 to 1? If God is with you, you have nothing to fear. 
God made Gideon continue to whittle down the size of the army because God wanted to get the glory for this battle. And we learned in the Ten Commandments that God is a jealous God. In fact, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And God wants to make sure that if there's a battle that's won with 450 to 1 odds, he's going to receive the glory for that because it's not by power, it's not by might, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, here's the third story, very briefly, and you know this judge. His name is Samson. We would call him a man of vindication. With Samson, you'll see that God can do mighty things with just one man, sometimes even in spite of himself. That, That would be the case with Samson. Samson is strong. He's courageous. He's bold. He's a man's man. Samson is intimidating. He's known for his strength. God had empowered him and showed that strength so many times. And Samson was raised to be a Nazarite which meant he would never drink alcohol, he would never cut his hair, and he would never eat anything unclean until the day he died. Now, Samson didn't keep all that very well. The only thing that he really kept until late into his life is he didn't cut his hair. The others he broke pretty early on. And at one point, Samson wanted to marry a Philistine woman, an unbeliever. His parents tried to talk him out of it, but he wouldn't listen, and he married her and got off to a pretty bad start. And it was just one of many relationships that Samson got into that were wrong and sinful. And Samson took the enemies of God, and he could fight anybody. There was one story about a time he fought a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But as strong as Samson was, he had a weakness when it came to women, especially pagan women. In fact, the secret of his strength was in the fact that he never cut his hair, but his wife Delilah was not a believer. She gradually over time gets the secret from him. And when you read the story about how she gets the secret, you have to think, how could a guy be so dumb? But when people get their eyes off the Lord, they can make some pretty senseless decisions. And that's what happened with Samson. Delilah plays a part in the capture of Samson. She gives him a haircut, and the Philistines gouge out his eyes. And Samson was a man of pride, but his pride had been so wounded. He was so desperate and so broken. And that's when he turns humbly to God, and he pleads for help to God. And isn't that how we do it? We try to do everything on our own for so long till we figure out we can't, and we are humbled, and we are afraid, and that's when we turn to God. He's gone from being the strongest man in the world to being a laughingstock of his own people, all at the hands of the enemies of God. And he's standing there, chained between two pillars, and he really wants vindication and justice for the enemies of God. And so here's what happens. It's in Judges chapter 16, verse 27. It says, now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. They were just making fun of him. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh, God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. He braced himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. So throughout the book of Judges, it's the same cycle. Disobedience, punishment, repentance, deliverance. We see that over and over. And of these seven cycles with the Israelites, each section begins with that phrase, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, now they're walking in darkness again. 
I don't know if you've ever gone through one of those tours of a cave. I've done that with several different caves. And every time, the guide will do pretty much the same thing. He'll say, I'm going to turn all the lights out. I want you to just see how dark it really is when there is no light in the cave. And he turns the lights out. And you put your hand in front of your face, and you can't see it. You know it's there because you're breathing, and the, and the air is splashing back at your face. But you can't see a thing. It's just totally dark. One thing you learn about darkness the longer you stay in the dark, the more comfortable you become in that. And you kind of get to where you can see your way around a little bit in the dark. And the Israelites had gotten pretty good at walking in darkness. They had become very comfortable with walking in darkness. And maybe you can relate. You know, if we're not careful, our walk with Christ can start to look like the walk the Israelites took. Earl Nightingale said, you will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. You know, sometimes we don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And maybe you've been in that cycle of poor choices, sinful behavior. But I want you to know God can still work. It's not over. Just like with Samson, the story doesn't end until the very last paragraph. And things can really change right at the end. And maybe you, you're not able to see, but God can see. You might not have strength, but God has strength. You might not have courage, but God can give you courage. And you might not see a way out, but God can provide a way out. He did it for his son, Jesus. It was death, but Christ chose that path so that he would conquer the grave. And because he did, God delivered him. Deliverance came when God won, and he can do the very same thing for you and I. And maybe you've been in a pattern of darkness, but today you can step into his marvelous light. And you need to remember, he's more concerned about your future than he is about your past. Because I just know there's probably people sitting in here that are thinking, God can't really do, I mean, look at my past. What's God going to do with that? Well, he's going to give you a brand new start. And he's not going to see the past. Remember, the Bible says he forgives our sins. Only he can forgive them. And he can forgive them as far as the east is from the west. He won't even remember those things. He's concerned about your future. So today may be the day that you say things are going to turn around for me because I'm going to follow God. If you're ready to make that decision today, we're ready for you. And there's people at both of the decision point rooms who would be there to help guide you in that decision. Maybe today you just need prayer. Um, you know what your life is like and you're alone in that. You just need to share that with someone and say, pray with me. They would love to pray with you today. So right now we're going to stand and sing. If you need to make a decision, I'd encourage you to do that today. Let's stand together.